ask all these things in your son's sake. Amen. Amen. I think there's only one thing that's ever has been original with me. I think I made this up, but I can't be sure. Uh, it's a saying I often say to myself. You have to kind of listen closely to it to figure out what it means. But I think it'll be obvious right away to some of you. It goes like this. When it's easy to be a Christian, it's hard to be a Christian. And when it's hard to be a Christian... It's easy to be a Christian. What am I saying? I think one of the problems I have with this current culture, and I think I probably, it's probably true for most of you, because most of you are somewhere near my age, is I grew up in Christendom when the culture pretty much paralleled the church and supported the church and respected the church and uh, amen the church, even non-believers. Oh, but I want a church in my neighborhood. Sociologists that study this kind of stuff say the last vestiges of Christendom disappeared about 2004. And then from 2004 to 2014, the culture tolerated the church, but they didn't really want it around. Um, in fact, they were kind of, you know, uh, looked at the church scans. Then they say in 2014, the culture totally turned on the church, and that's what we're seeing. And this in conjunction with the whole idea of postmodernism, deconstructing language and all that. I remember when I first went to Dallas to be pastor, and there was a retired pastor in our church who was theologically at the other end of the spectrum from me, and my church used to support Austin Seminary, but stopped doing that long before I got there. And this guy was an Austin graduate, and he wanted the church to you know, put funds toward Austin. So he, they'd called a new president, and I knew the president because he was in seminary with me, and he was a, at the other end of the theological spectrum in seminary. At that time, he was really the only liberal at Union Seminary in Richmond in our student body. Um, and I thought, well... Maybe he's changed. And so uh, this pastor said, would you be willing to have lunch with so-and-so? And he arranged it at the Park Cities Club in Dallas. And so I went and said, hey, Ted, I haven't seen him in 30 years. Uh, and his first words to me is, Ron, I'm now, I now believe the Apostles' Creed. I said, great. And so we were having lunch. Then, But something inside me said, hmm. I said, hey, Ted, can we talk about the Apostles' Creed a little bit? Why, sure. So we didn't get through the first clause, I believe in God the Father Almighty, before I realized he didn't believe it. And he's, but in his mind, he dis deconstructed what he thought the Creed was saying. In fact, he said to me, Ron, it's impossible for us to know what the writers of the Creed really meant by that statement. I said, you know what, Ted, you're right. But here's what the church of Jesus Christ for the last 2,000, or not 2,000, 1,400 years have thought they met, and it's been pretty much of a consensus. The church may be wrong, but uh, this is the, what the church in our book of confessions says we believe that. Anyway, um, when it's easy to be a Christian, when the, beware when the culture supports the church. That doesn't feel good, doesn't even sound good, but if you study church history, when people ask me if there's one course that I could take in seminary, Ron, what should it be? I always say church history. Because you see, there's nothing new under the sun. The church has been through this before, and um, it helps you to relax and realize that you know, we've been through worse than what the church is going through now. And the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, and that, that's the track record. So when the culture props up the church, when it's easy to be a Christian, and I look back 40 years ago when I was an associate pastor here, we were 3,000 and some members. It was the hot church, Trinity Baptist and us. We were the two hot churches. So everybody was here. But I can tell you, I knew a lot of people, and they really didn't believe what we believed, but you had to go to church. And this was a good place to any, if you're going to, be stuck in a church having to listen to some preacher. Lewis Ben was as good as any. Um, 
So when it's easy to be a Christian, it's hard to be a Christian because you're propped up, you're not really having to wrestle with your faith, you just kind of go along. But when it's hard to be a Christian, take North Korea. My church in Dallas, uh, the, the, the regular people at that church don't even know this happened. We could not publicize it. We sent our Korean pastor with about four laymen to China and they snuck into North Korea and made their way to a well-known bread factory which was run by Christians. The bread factory was a front for entrance into the underground church. And they made contact with pastors in the underground church. They came back and, and we were on our knees praying for these guys because if they got caught they'd be executed. And then they had to sneak back into China and then come home. They did it successfully. They went to encourage the underground church in North Korea. But they also came back and said, Ron, I don't even know if I'm a Christian compared to those guys. I mean, their faith is so strong and honed. Why? Because it's hard to be a Christian in North Korea. So it's, when it's tough, it's easy to be a Christian. Um, it's reported that when Nikita Khrushchev became premier of the Soviet Union, the KGB went to him and said, look it, say the word and we will wipe out the church. And Khrushchev wouldn't do it. They couldn't understand why. We know now that his wife was a believer. She's buried in a Russian Orthodox cemetery. You don't get buried unless you are a professing believer. Guess who's buried next to her? Nikita. Underneath it all, he was probably a believer. So he was uh, succeeded by Brezhnev. KGB came to him and said, okay, we know you're the real deal. Let us wipe out the church. And Brezhnev said, no. He said, why? There was a glass of water on the table. Said, Brezhnev said, see that glass of water? Leave it alone. It just sits there. Smash it. It goes everywhere. Jesus told us about this in Matthew 10. Listen to this. This is Jesus speaking, uh, not me. So you need to take it seriously. He says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you're to say, for you are to for what you are to say will be given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the and the father is child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. I can't tell you how many appointments I've had with parents in the last five years to say. We cannot say certain things anymore. Our children have said, we will no longer talk to you if you support a certain candidate or you're supportive of this, that, or the other. I have a dear friend of mine who's an Orthodox Presbyterian pastor. He's been a great lifeline to me. And his son was so anti-Trump that he said, Dad, if I even think that in any way you are supportive of him, I will never talk to you again. So you know what my friend did? He joined a group. Can you believe this? This was an actual group back before the last election. Pro-life evangelicals for Biden. And he was so desperate for his, and that was a signal to his son that I'm for Biden. So I... It, this is happening all over the place. Children will rise against parents. Have them put to death. Whoa. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in your one town, flee the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the household Beelzebul, how much more will they malign 
those of his household. Jesus is telling his disciples then, and he's telling us now, the church will always be at odds with the culture. Why? Because the prince of this world, the prince of the culture, is not Christ, it's somebody else. So beware of wanting the culture to really affirm you, and be ready to realize that um, it's probably always going to be this way. We're never going to be in the majority. The church has always been a remnant. In fact, if you read the whole Bible, the people of God are always a, a remnant. It's never the big, big group. But look what Jesus promises. He says the Holy Spirit will give you the strength, the power to say what you need to say when you're under persecution. I think I've told this story in here before about the over a million Armenians who were executed by the Turks in World War I. Armenians were Christian, the Turks were Muslim, and they lined them up, and they dig big trenches behind them. Men, women, children put a gun under their chin and say, if you say Allah, you walk free. If you say Jesus, boom. Not one Armenian broke ranks, over a million. Imagine if you're a seven-year-old boy and your father's there and he says Jesus, and boom. I don't know about you, I'd be tempted to go, Allah. I'm going to say Allah, Lord, but you know I don't really believe it. And I'm better to serve you alive than dead, right? Not one Armenian broke ranks. Um, what, a, what a testimony. And, he, and Jesus says, do not be afraid. You know, wherever we are, whatever's happening in our lives, we have a choice of living either by faith or by fear. It's one or the other. And Jesus is saying, don't be afraid. I really am sovereign. I really am in control over everything that's going on. You know, every year at this time, as I read through the Bible every year, and I want to encourage you to do that, because if you're going out here in this culture and you're listening to just me and then the preacher, but the rest of your week you're getting this other stuff, it's going to be harder for you to navigate out there. So let me encourage you to read through the Bible every year that you're still alive. It takes you 25 minutes a day rather than looking at you know, your phone. And there are Bible reading plans out there. You just Google Bible reading plan. It'll give you 18 different ones. There's the thing called the one-year Bible uh, that you can buy. And it gives you Old and New Testament and Psalms to read every day. And at the end of the year, you've done the whole Bible. And the Holy Spirit's using that to do more on you than you think. I, I've learned far more through reading through the Bible every year than I did for four years in a doctoral program in a seminary. And I still am learning. Um, anyway, I'm in Genesis and I'm immediately reminded as I was reading that God above everything else is a God of light. We only get three verses into the first book of the Bible and we find God speaking, let there be light. He creates light. And as an ex-scientist, if you know anything about physics or chemistry or anything else, light is the, the gold standard, the speed of light. We believe there's nothing faster than light. And it's amazing how as objects approach the speed of light, how the dimensions of time and matter actually are altered and changed. If we could put you in a spaceship and accelerate you toward the speed of light, and you went up for six weeks and came back down. You'd be timing it with your calendar and your watch, and we'd be doing the same, and you will have been gone by our calendar for six months, but it only seemed like six weeks to you. And let's say you, like me, I weigh 200 pounds. If you could accelerate me toward the speed of light, I would weigh tons. Now, there's been no matter added to my being. Why do I weigh more? We don't know. It's called time warp and mass warp. We don't even know what light is. As a scientist, if I say, is light a particle? The answer is what? Yes. But if I say, is light a wave? Not a particle, but the answer is yes. And under certain circumstances, light behaves as a particle. Under other circumstances, it behaves as a wave. And so God has created this mysterious thing. It's at the heart of, 
of um, all existence. Scripture understands itself, Psalm 119, verse 105, as being a light to our path. Christians are called to walk in the light, not in the dark. During Advent, we listen to Isaiah say in 9 2 that we uh, that the incarnation, what happened there is God actually taking on human form in Jesus Christ. Actually, uh, the people that witnessed that have seen a great light. Jesus describes himself in Matthew and John as being the light of the world. Peter in his first letter, verse chapter 2, verse 9, says that Christ has called every Christian to walk not in darkness, but in light. And I say all this to point out um, the, 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 to contrast that with the state of our current culture, which I refer to as a culture of darkness and death and tyranny. And it's really the opposite of what, who God is and what you and I are called to be. Um, and at the heart of this, I really believe is that humanity has devolved down into humanism, then further devolving into what's gripped our culture today as narcissism. Now, humanism is not a bad thing. John Calvin was a humanist. What do I mean by that? Coming out of the, the dark ages, the medieval times, um, people didn't think very highly of life. Uh, I mean, they butchered each other. I'm a Scot, you know, all the clans, they were killing each other. Life was cheap. It's Calvin and Luther and folks like that who really uh, regained a biblical understanding of the preciousness of human life. And that was good. Now that devolved during the Enlightenment to a bifurcation between uh, faith in God and faith in man, and man became, you know, for many people, the, the, the center of being. Uh, and, and now that's devolved in what I call narcissism. I mean, when people are thrown, I, I demand to be called this. You have to consider me to be this and dress me by these pronouns or you're bad. That's the epitome of narcissism. And Jesus said, you know, we're to deny ourselves. Um, Rick Warren one time said, you know, being a, a Christian is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less and thinking of God more. And we really uh, have devolved into this narcissistic culture that... Uh, imagine a politician running for office and here's his slogan. Ask not what your country can do for you, but what your, you can do for your country. Would that person get elected? People go, what, are you crazy? What can you do for me? Of course, you know, that was John F. Kennedy. He'd come a long way. Um, from that culture to the current culture. Um, I believe that it's no coincidence that what's happening in our culture and what is happening, get God out of the public square, um, alter the language, control the press, lie creatively from the top down, get rid of the middle class, indoctrinate children. Lenin had a famous saying. He said, give me your children for four years and I will have them forever. Indoctrinate children, um, create a dependent proletariat. You know, I think they're going to roll out another check for us coming soon. The first part of me is like, oh boy. And then I think, wait a minute, I don't want this. The more the government gives you, let them eat cake, the more dependent we become, that's, all of this just happens to parallel what Karl Marx writes about in the Communist Manifesto, which is an interesting book to read in case you want to uh, alter the language. How many times have you heard both parties talk about we're here to preserve democracy or democracy is under threat? Every time I hear that on the news, I just go, shut up, you idiots. 
The United States of America is not a democracy. It's never been a democracy. That was considered by the founding fathers. You know what the difference between the French Revolution and the American Revolution was? The French Revolution was all about creating a democracy. James Madison said, we don't want that. A democracy always winds up eventually becoming a tyranny. Because what happens in a democracy, it sounds good, majority wins, majority rule. And that's the way we de facto think, most of us, most of the time. But what happens when the majority rules? The minority loses. And the majority starts looking for ways to make sure that the minority continues to lose so they get a lock on power. Madison was a committed Christian. Jefferson wasn't. Washington was. Franklin wasn't. But they lived in a culture shaped by biblical standards, and they took sin seriously. Democracy does not take sin seriously. In fact, it becomes mob rule. If, if, I mean, if, if the bad guys are in the majority, it becomes a mob rule. And they also knew that monarchy is not a good thing. If you have a, 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 a benign king, a godly king, it's good. Look at the kings in the Bible. How many of them were godly, you know? And, they, and George III, they did not consider to be a godly king. So they said, we don't want a mar monarchy. We don't want a democracy. Sin is real. How can we construct a, a government that takes sin seriously and, and protects the rights of the minority and and creates a level playing field. So they came up with these three branches of government that have checks and balances. You know, they were screaming, we had to get rid of the electoral college. And that does seem kind of an antiquated, weird kind of thing. But that's one of the brilliant parts of, our, of their, their vision of what a government should look like, because that really protects the rights of the minority. And were we to get rid of that, you would see us devolve into a democracy and and I think we're already on the throes of tyranny right now. You know, I'm I'm a registered Democrat, folks, so don't think I'm just this right wing guy. I've always seen myself as a centrist and growing up I felt like, you know, okay, if the Democrats win, the needle kind of goes if the Republicans win, it goes but I never doubted any presidential candidate in my lifetime until 2008 that both sides weren't for the betterment of this country. And in 2008, then I heard about how bad, from the mouth of the president, how bad this country was. He was running around the world apologizing. Yet we have sins. The beauty of a federal republic is it takes its own sins seriously and tries to correct it. Democracies don't do that. If they're in power, ah, you, that's not sin to us. And give the United States enough time, we usually will correct our faults. But uh, I never felt like it was like one party was for America and the other party was like, trying to burn it down. Since 2008, I've never seen this before. And um, I don't like it. But... God is sovereign. He's on the throne. As Paul Kasher, our teacher and my good friend, always says, none of this makes God nervous. And I have to quote that to myself all the time because it makes me nervous. And um, so anyway, how do we navigate this current culture? Well, you know, Here's what I'm learning as I'm wrestling with all this. Number one, there's not a one-size-fits-all. I mean, another way of asking the question is, how do I respond to what's going on around me? Well, it's about what God is calling you to do. Not, here's what we all should do. But I want to get away from that. It's like when people come to me, when I used to do a lot of pastoral counseling, they, a big question was, 
Ron, help me discern God's will for my life. What they're usually asking is, I want to know God's micro will. Like, do I take this job? Do I buy a house now? Or blah, blah, blah. And I, I used to always say, first, let's talk about God's macro will. The micro will is not very clear. If it was, we wouldn't be asking the question. The macro will is very clear. What's the macro will of God? That's why you need to read the Bible every year. This is the macro will. You're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. You know, you take up your cross and follow Christ daily wherever he leads you. And sometimes that's not into nice, comfortable situations. Most people don't. I, I, you should say, let's get the macro. Make sure you're getting the macro will. You're in step with that. And then I'll bet you the micro will, he will start revealing that. Well, it's sort of like this with our culture today. I can't say, let's all go out and, you know, pick it. Or let's, but you need to pick it if God's calling you to go pick at something. Or let's work on this campaign for this guy. Let's, not all of us. If God's calling you to do it, do it. You've got to figure out what's God's macro will first before, well, what's the macro will? Jesus just told us in Matthew 10. Expect to get persecuted, but you're to be, and, but don't chicken out when you're asked to state who you are and what you believe. You're to say it graciously. Don't expect them to Pat you on the back. Um, take up your cross and follow me. And I preached a sermon once in Dallas called The Search for the Balsa Wood Cross. Those of you, when I was a little boy, they had those little balsa wood planes you'd make, you know, this real light wood, you know. Um, that's the kind of cross I want to pick up, balsa wood. <laughs> well, let's segue over to the Barman Declaration. Because this is some of the same stuff these German Christians were dealing with, the underground church in Germany in the middle 1930s. The Third Reich silenced the press and took it over. They marginalized and captured the, the hierarchy of the church. And they, it, was a, it was very much a cancel culture. You know what I mean? You could be taken out pretty quick. Not just silence from speaking, but you'd be killed. And um, there's a lot more atrocity that went on by the Germans. I'm doing some reading on that. And I'm like, I didn't know that. I mean, it, it was horrible, and much worse than we can, than most of us realize. And so, if you look at that second clause of the Barman Declaration, and I gave mine away, so I can't read it. But um, basically what it's saying is that they are going to put Jesus Christ as to who Christ says he is, not some figment of their imagination. They're taking Jesus seriously as who he really is and that he must be Lord and sovereign over every facet of yours and my life. You know, the Sunday I was sick, I was going to do this class entitled The Incarnation as the Antidote to Gnosticism. And I never got to do it. Maybe I'll do it some other time. But basically, in a nutshell, Gnosticism came out really from Plato, um, and it was picked up by uh, segments of the Jewish faith. Then the early church bought into, or some of the Christians bought into, it's the whole idea that what's most important in life is not the physical material, but the spiritual. And some of you are probably thinking inside, well, that's true. That's what I believe. And you may believe that. That is not what the Bible says. In fact, the Bible says there's, there's, there's no demarcation between spiritual and you, you can't compartmentalize. Here's the non-spiritual part of my life that I do over here. Like my job, raising kids, uh, going for a run, hoeing the garden. 
And then spiritual stuff, I go to church at First Press, or I have my quiet time, or I go to a Bible study. Or something. That's spiritual stuff. And we're doing this back and forth. The Bible knows nothing of that. And we're encouraged in Scripture to bring Christ. I mean, if you have a personal relationship with Jesus, what's, his, what's the bottom line promise he makes to you at the end of Matthew's Gospel? Remember, I will be with you until the end of the age. Even to the end. And other places he says, I will never desert you. I have you in the hall of my hand. I will never let you go, blah, 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 blah. So where on your daily journey as a believer in Christ, where can you go that Christ is not with you? Nowhere. In fact, if you really believe that, that can be a great check on temptations to sin. Do I really want to go take Jesus with me in there? Or meet with this person? (laughs) And that's helpful to me. I don't have a fish symbol on my car anymore, but I used to have it. And it was not so much to say I'm a Christian. It's because when I was tempted to flip the bird to somebody, I go, oh, wait a minute, I got that sticker on the back. I can't do that. So it's more to keep my sin in check. One time I pulled up behind a car and it said, bumper seat, it said, honk if you love Jesus. So I went, and the guy turned around. I thought, well, maybe it's his sister's car or something. It was a used car. So uh, anyway, that keeps our sin in check. It can anyway. I'm with you always. I'll never let you go. So there's, there's no bifurcation of, of uh, spiritual and material. God's interested in how you conduct your business, how you deal with your neighbor, how you cut your grass. He's, Jesus says, you know, in that same Matthew 10 passage, I didn't get down to it, but he says, here's how much I care about you. I know the numbers of hairs on your head. Now, for, I know some people that's easy, but, um, but I mean, the whole point is God is, he, he's even interested in mundane triviality, more interested in parts of our lives than we are. I mean, he knows us, he wants to know us intimately, and he never wants to, he won't leave our sides, and he wants us to recognize his presence with him. If you've never read the book, The Practice of the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence of the Resurrection, that's a class, you've got to read it. We had a pastor here many years ago named Dick Ryan. And he said, Ron, have you ever read this? And I said, no. He said, read it. It's, it's easy read. It's not very long. Here's this um, monk, Brother Lawrence of the Resurrection. He's in a, in a monastery, and all the monks have jobs. His is chopping vegetables in the kitchen every day. And of course, in the monastery, they have orders of the day. The bell rings, everybody stops, whatever they're doing, and they go into the chapel and they worship. And they have like seven orders of the day. And one day, Brother Lawrence was reading uh, Matthew 28. And Jesus says, I will be with you until, until the end of the age. And he started just meditating on that and he said, Well, that means Christ is with me all the time, 24 hours a day. If that's true, why do, we, why do I have to wait until the bell rings to go recognize that in worship? Why can't, I wonder if chopping vegetables can be worship. Could I do that? And he starts doing that and his whole life changes. And really the book is an exchange of letters between him and this wealthy woman because the word gets out and she's interested in hearing about this. I read that book and it was a paradigm change for me. I mean, I always knew Jesus was kind of there, but it really challenged me to start just recognizing his presence every minute, everywhere I am. And sometimes that's comforting and sometimes it's a, would you leave and <laughs> go do this? For but, um, and sometimes I just violate that right in his face. I know he's got a grace. He's not going to strike me down. Hey, it worked. Um, <laughs> And I just break his heart. So Gnosticism, this idea that your spiritual life is more important to God than what you're doing with the rest of your life, 
is just not biblical. It's not true. And so how you and I navigate this culture, um, everything that happens to us, first of all, we, on the macro level, we need to remember Christ is with us and Christ calls us to walk in a certain way and he's calling us, we all have different gifts and he's calling us to different things. So reading through the Bible ought to give you God's macro will for how you're to navigate this. And then in certain instances, that's when you need to be on your knees and figure out what the micro will of God is. Now in the Reformed tradition, we Presbyterians uh, from Calvin on have always emphasized, and we don't talk about this enough, the three ordinary means of grace. This is how you and I root ourselves in touch with the macro will of God. The three ordinary means of grace, which are the Word, the Bible, prayer, and the sacrament. And you might put slash worship. The sacrament's the Lord's Supper. John Calvin, John Knox, said these are the three ordinary means of grace that we must be anchored in this as the written Word of God. This is not a book of helpful hints for harmful habits, uh, not God throwing, you know, kind of God's version of poor Richard's almanac. We Presbyterian type Christians have said this is the infallible, inerrant Word of God. Is there a God? We say yes. Is he personal? We say yes. Well, if he's personal, is there a chance he's actually communicated with us as his creation? We say yes. How? This is the ordinary means of grace. And if you think you can navigate the culture unanchored from the Word of God, you are, it's like saying, okay, go over and fight the Russians in Ukraine, but don't take any weapons. I meant to write this on the board, and back to Gnosticism. Um, a good little classic to read, again, it's an easy read, but it'll blow you away, is a little booklet, um, cost, used to cost 75 cents, published by InterVarsity. Uh, my Heart, Christ's Home. by a now deceased Presbyterian pastor, Robert Munger, who was pastor First Pres, Berkeley, California, for decades. And that is a solid church on the U right off the UCAL campus, just a biblically solid church. Munger's book, his whole premise is, look at your life as if it were a house. And okay, you become a Christian, so you invite Christ into your house. But, you know, there's, you have that room that you, really, you don't want Christ to go into the basement because there's some stuff down there. You know, so, and you've got that closet where you put a padlock on that. You invite him into the living room, and that's where you like him to be. And that's where you spend most of your time with Christ. But, you know, you're not sure you want him to come into the kitchen or the bar area or something. And Munger's simple premise is this. As you become a more mature Christian, you invite Christ into more and more of the rooms of your house. And then, at the end, you actually turn the deed of the house over to him. And I would encourage, you could probably go to any Christian bookstore and they'll have that. Uh, read it. It's a classic. Well, back to, back to Barman. Um, if you look at their, what they say, they talk about Okay, we're going to make Jesus Lord of every facet of our life. And they call Christ, uh, they say he's the Jesus of wisdom. You know, there's a difference between wisdom and knowledge. When I was a junior in high school, and I, this is horrible, but it's true, we had a, a physical sciences professor named Mr. Bone, B-O-H-N. This guy was the only faculty member at our high school with a PhD. 
why do you have a PhD? He was teaching in high school. Well, Mr. Bone was very wise, but he, I mean, very knowledgeable, but he had no wisdom. Every day, there was a kid in our class. He had a, a big stool, and a kid would go in every day and put a tack on the stool. And Mr. Bone would sit down and go, oh! And, I mean, the next day, oh! The next day, oh! And one time, I remember, we pennied him in to the classroom. You know, put the pennies around the door, and he, he didn't know how to get out. No cell phones that day. I remember one day we had a, there was a big display of a volcano. And there's just stuff you can take. It's ferric um, oxide or something. You, it's like a, a dark orange powder, and you can put it in there and light it, and, and it makes the volcano. It comes out like lava and spew. So one kid went in before class, poured that stuff in there, and he was an expert on how to delay fuses, like on firecrackers and everything. And he put a delayed fuse in there, lit it. So in the middle of class, the volcano, and Mr. Bones running around going, oh, how did that happen? So anyway, Mr. Bones was not very wise, but he was knowledgeable. So anyway, difference between wisdom and knowledge. You and I need to navigate the culture with wisdom. That's not going to come from learning all about the culture and learn how we can battle them and everything, unless God calls you to do that. But how do we do this wisely? Well, again, J Jesus is wisdom personified. Close relationship with Christ, living the way he wants you and me to live, that's wisdom. And it says that Jesus is righteous. Righteous is a fancy-sounding word, but it's really simple. It just means being in right relationship. You and I are righteous, not when we're sinless and deserving and vacancy in a stained-glass window someplace. It means that we are in right relationship with God through Christ. So we need to examine our own lives. We can't navigate this culture faithfully unless we intentionally work on our being in right relationship with, with Christ. And it talks about sanctification. Um, you know, that's Christ's Holy Spirit leading you and me. Um, that's what sanctification is. It, Justification is when God regenerates yours and my heart and he gives us saving faith in Christ. We don't bring anything to that except our sin. I mean, there's nothing we do to earn salvation. Uh, it's a total 100% act of the Holy Spirit to regenerate your heart. But Ron, don't we have to make a choice for Jesus? Yes. But you can't make a choice for Jesus until the Holy Spirit regenerates your heart. That's not my opinion. Augustine wrote a great tract called The Bondage of the Will, St. Augustine. He's probably, outside of Paul, the best Christian theologian there's ever been. We Reformed-type Christians, we're Augustinians, Calvin, Luther. Augustine was their chief theologian. And Augustine said, before the Holy Spirit regenerates your hearts and minds, we will always choose against God. You cannot choose God in, under your own power. You're, all, you're, you're fallen. Your sinful nature will not let you go that way. But when the Holy Spirit regenerates your heart, then you make the choice. So yes, you do need to make the choice. But if you're like me, when I made the choice, and I didn't understand all this at the time, I made the choice, I thought, you know, I figured this out. And I, then I looked behind me and I was like, whoa, there was God working in all kinds of people's lives and events, weaving them into my life, I mean, I realized, whoa, I was, I was, I, I had no choice, you know. I was on a pathway, but I didn't know it, and it's God did it, 100%. All I brought was my, my sin to that. And, um, and he talks about Jesus as being the father of redemption. What does that mean? What does the word redeem mean? It's a very important word we need to understand. Um, I remember Lewis preaching 40 years ago, and he preached a sermon, and he, and he said, what does that word redemption mean? He told the story about a uh, Bible translator somewhere in Africa translating the Bible from, uh, in, into this native language. And he had to go there and learn the, the tribal language. And he got to the word redemption in some New Testament passage. And he, 
He didn't know what, a, what the tribal word would be for that. So he went to the chief, who was all into this translation work, and he said, help me understand what your word would be for redemption. The chief said, what do you mean by redemption? And he, explained, he tried to explain it theologically to the chief, and the chief said, let me work on it, I'll come back to you. So I don't know, a couple of days later, the chief comes back and he says, I got it. And the translator goes, okay, what is it? And he goes, take your head out. <laughs> take your head out? What does that have to do with anything? And the chief said, oh, 100 years ago, the slave traders would come. They would raid our village. They would capture our fine young men, put those collars and chains around their necks and march them through the jungles to the awaiting slave ships on the west coast of Africa. But if you had some wealth, some gold or something, the father could run after the slave traders and say, can I buy my son back? I'll give you this gold. And if it was enough, the slave trader would go, okay, take his head out. They'd undo it. That is what redemption is all about. You and I are slaves before we met Christ. We are slaves. We deserve to be slaves. And there's no way we get out of the collar. But God in his unconditional love for you and me, more love than that father had for the real son that was, you know, they took gold to. Jesus goes to the cross and redeems us. And in so doing, he takes our head out of slavery to the world and we are set free in Christ. These German Christians uh, during the Third Reich really believed this. That enabled them to navigate that horrific culture. And in every of these Barman declarations, there's an affirmation and a renunciation. Affirmation in this number two is Jesus as Lord and Savior. Now, you and I probably don't have a problem with the Savior part. I recognize Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and I'm glad he did that. Although I always like to say, you know, it's not like you could have died for your sins. It's just wonderful that Christ took that pain so I didn't have to. No, you couldn't die on a cross for your sins. You could nail me to a billion crosses, and I can't atone for my sins. But Christ is the once-for-all sufficient, perfect, infinite sacrifice that covers our sin. Um, I love this phrase, uh, this saying by Tim Keller. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Let me repeat that. The gospel is this. You and I are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Do you see the light shining through that statement? Contrast to that to Islam, which I call the religion of darkness. Islam knows nothing of grace. Nothing of a, the love of God. Every Muslim dies in terror because it's all about do my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds? If, if my good deeds don't, Allah sends me to hell. Mohammed said, I don't know what my eternal destiny is. I don't know if my good deeds have outweighed my... That's why, if I was a Muslim and really believed that, I'd be, I'd be blowing you guys up right now because that's the only way you can be assured of paradise. Um, I'm going to tell the joke. I think I've told the joke. It's my favorite joke because <laughs> my family's all from Virginia. And so, and this is, has bad theology in it and it's way outdated, but it is funny. Um, Osama bin Laden. See the dated part because he's already gone. But he's alive and um, he's heading up his thing. And he goes to a... Uh, a business seminar, and the, the guy's talking about, you know, don't ever ask your employees to do something you're not willing to model for them. Think, well, I'm asking these guys to go blow themselves up. I better do that. 
So he straps some dynamite on. He goes into a building and blows himself up. Now here's the bad theology. He winds up in heaven. And uh, the first person he meets in heaven is George Washington. And Washington walks up to him and goes, you tried, to you tried to destroy the country that I founded. And um, then the next person you meet is Patrick Henry. And Patrick Henry kicks him in the shins. And then uh, Robert E. Lee appears and throws him on the ground. And Stonewall Jackson starts jumping up and down. Well, this goes on for about an hour. And Osama's laying there all bloodied and beat up. And St. Peter walks by. And Osama says, oh, I thought this was heaven. And Peter says, it is. And he said, well, my Muslim theology told me when I arrived in Henry, I'd be met by 70 virgins. Peter said, no, no, 70 Virginians. <laughs> Sorry, Ann. But, okay, we get the Savior part. We have trouble with the Lordship part. I have trouble with the Lordship part. That means I have to bring, to be an authentic Christian, I have to at least be struggling to bring every, every, no options, no loophole, every facet of my life, my money, my mind, my thoughts, my, you know what I'm talking about, everything under the Lordship of Christ. That is not easy. That is not fun. It's convicting. It's, you know, hard. It's easy to just say, I'll take the Savior part, get me a ticket to heaven. But what does it mean to live in this culture with Christ as a Lord of every facet of your life. It means the culture is not going to like you because it doesn't like Christ. And there's a renunciation uh, in the Garmin Declaration. Um, in the renunciation, renunciation is this idea that you can compartmentalize your life, sacred versus secular, and we've already kind of talked about that. You know, um, when I hear people talk about socialism and communism as kind of being okay, and that, you know, what's really bad is those religious wars, you know, people that have God in their lives, oh, that's what I Do you not believe that? Do you know what the bloodiest, most awful century was ever in the history of humankind? The one we just left, the 20th century, that under communist regimes, Russia, China, North Korea, more, something like 230 million people were slaughtered. Um, if 2023 is a typical year, average year, did you know there are more Christians will be martyred because they refuse to give up their faith in Jesus Christ than in the first four centuries of the church put together? That's when we think of the martyrs, you know, getting thrown in the arena. No, about 250,000 Christians, if this is a typical year, will be killed this year because of their allegiance to Jesus Christ. We live in the time of martyrdom. Renunciation. Renunciate the idea that you can compartmentalize your life. Let me just say one last thing because we're out of time. Back to sanctification. I don't like sanctification. I like, I want to be, I like the justification. God saves me. I don't want to have to do the hard work of working with the Holy Spirit to try to live a more Christ-like life. I'd rather like, once I'm saved, once saved, always saved, it really doesn't matter how I live. That's a Gnostic approach. You know, the Gnostics either said, one of their things was, the body is totally of, inconsequential to God. So it really doesn't matter what you do. If you believe in Jesus, you do anything with your body you want. So you had the, the Gnostics actually went to two extremes. Either the body is bad, because all materiality is bad. That's what the Gnostics thought. So you go out in a desert and climb up on a pole and sit there and, you know, aesthetics, you know, deprive yourself of any bodily comforts. And that's not in the Bible. Your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. God don't want to live in no slum. Um, the other side of that is, I've accepted Jesus, now I can just go out and bed down every woman in America, you know, and God doesn't care, because I go to church on Sunday. You know. Kind of the Al Capone approach to faith. Al Capone never missed Mass. He was in the confessional every Saturday. Imagine being that priest. 
He gave more, and he gave more money to the Roman Catholic Church than anybody in the Chicago area. And, uh, but then he went out the rest of the weekend. He compartmentalized, don't be Al Capone. The 1904 Welsh Revival is pretty amazing. It's a great illustration of how sanctification works. These Welsh coal miners started coming to Christ by the hundreds. It was the real deal. They really gave their lives to Christ. And because of that, coal production in Wales plummeted. You know why? Because the coal miners realized, I'm now a believer in Jesus Christ. I can't cuss anymore. I mean, that's a kind of a trivial thing, but no, it's a serious thing. I'm not going to cuss anymore. Well, you know how they used to get the coal cars out of the mine? They were pulled by mules. They would cuss the mules and beat them mercilessly. Well, they didn't cuss anymore, and they thought, well, that animal is a creation of God, and I, I can't be mean to it. So it took them forever to get the coal cars out of the mines. And, and then, you know what the coal companies had to do? They had to build sheds to contain all the tools that the coal miners had stolen and brought back. That's sanctification. Their lives changed. And I like that. And I don't like that. I want to be saved, but I want to go do my own thing. That's my de facto nature. The Germans and the Barman Declaration are saying, you can't do that and navigate the Third Reich. You've got to be all in, sold out to Christ. The only way I keep myself on the right track is I get into the Bible daily, the three ordinary means of grace, Bible daily, prayer, which is not hocus pocus. It's a conversation with the living God. I have a guy in our neighborhood, he's Roman Catholic, and he and I talk all the time, he's my age. We believe just about everything. He's got a cross on his gate. And underneath it, he's got Buddhist prayer flags. I think he's really, he's, in the Roman Catholic Church, he would be a solid Orthodox Catholic because he and I talk about theology. and he's, We don't have any, any disagreement. I've been debating for months. Should I say, Greg, why do you have those Buddhist prayer flags on your gate? I know what his answer would be. My, I grew up in a half-Roman Catholic family. I know what the answer would be. Don't you believe in prayer, Ron? Huh? Well, of course. But I'd want to say, Greg, have you thought this through? Buddhists are atheists. They don't believe there's a God. They don't believe prayer. If it's a personal conversation with a living God, a Buddhist would say, well, I don't do that. They think flags flapping in the wind and prayer wheels somehow affects the karma of the universe. To... That's called syncretism. That's the strength and the bane of the Roman Catholic Church. The, the Roman Catholic Church has gone into about every culture there is and can make its way in there and, and plant. But they also, more than any other part of the Christian faith I know, can easily syncretize stuff. I was, I was in, I did a, took a bunch of senior highs from this church to Mexico, the jungles of Yucatan, and we were building a house for a pastor, a Presbyterian pastor in there. And there was a Roman Catholic church in the village, a little tiny Roman Catholic church, adobe thing. I went in there one day, and you know, in the Catholic church, they have the Stations of the Cross, the 14 Stations of the Cross. I was familiar with that. And they, had, they were kind of on a ledge around there, and there were little statues, you know, Jesus falling and kind of stuff. And then I'm like, wait a minute. Behind every one of those Stations of the Cross was a, a, was a Mayan idol. Well, the priest walked in. I said, I'm not trying to be, start a fight or anything. I'm a Presbyterian pastor in the States. It looks like there's a Mayan idol behind every one of the stations of the cross. And he went, oh, yeah. He said, I'm not for that. I, I'm against it. And I said, well, why are they there? He said, well, I, I took them down. And nobody would come to worship. So I put them back. Um, I don't know. We like the Savior part, 
We struggle with the lordship part. And the sacrament. Slash worship. The Lord, you know, we believe the sacrament is a means of grace. It's not a memorial like Baptists believe. Memorials, I like to tell my one of my best friends, Jim Dennison, a Baptist pastor in Dallas, said, Jim, memorials are for dead people. Christ is alive. We don't go to transubstantiation like Aquinas, who came up with that idea that the actual elements become the physical body and blood. Calvin said the memorial people are wrong and that's wrong. This is a mystery too great for the human mind to conceive. We believe the real presence of Christ in that sacrament, but we will not try to philosophically define how it happens. That's the Presbyterian stance. Sadly, most Presbyterians I ask, do you believe the real presence of Christ? Oh, of course not, I'm not Roman Catholic. No, we do. And if you ever go to a Roman Catholic church, go to the priest for the service and say, I'm a Presbyterian, can I receive communion? If it's a good priest, he'll say, well, do you believe the real presence? And you say, yes. And he goes, come on. I've never been refused in the Roman Catholic Church. Even by Archbishop Flores, he served me personally. Communion, I went to him before the service, and I said, I don't want to cause a scene. I'm not going to come forward. I was in the centennial service of St. Mary's Church. And he said, not only are you going to come forward, you're going to come to my station. I want to serve you. So, anyway, we need to pray and, and go. Thanks for sitting through overtime here. Lord Jesus Christ, you are King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, when I hear people say, make Christ Lord of your life, I cringe. We cannot make you Lord of our life. As if our choice makes you Lord. You are Lord of everything, whether we recognize it or not. So open our eyes that we might recognize your Lordship, your sovereignty, your love, your grace, and Lord, Help us to keep close accounts with you through word, prayer, regular worship, and receiving the sacrament. That equips us for this journey of navigating our way through this crazy culture. And give us courage and faith. You tell us, do not be afraid that I am with you. So we can make any journey if we've got the right companion. And we do have the right companion with a capital C. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.